Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everybody, today's show brought to you in part by velojerseys.com. You've been hearing me talking about these guys' commitment to design and to produce the finest cycling clothing you can ride, climb, and excel in style. They have dedicated themselves to providing you with the, oh, sorry, guys, the best materials, quality, and workmanship, along with bringing back the memories of your first heroes. Velo Jerseys history is Velo. Velo is now. Go to VeloJerseys.com. Insert the word Patrick filler. I know that sounds weird. You'd think it'd just be pack filler, but I think we wanted to be original. Patrick filler. And you're going to get 15% off of a kit. I just got a new one. I just got a cost kit. The socks, the hat, which I don't, I don't wear the hats really because I might wear them under a helmet on a crappy day, but I don't wear the hats enough. I just put them up on my walls, and the jersey though, the cost jersey, and I, I haven't had a chance to wear it yet, and I'll explain later in the show to that. But get over to VeloJerseys.com, check out what they got, and thanks to those guys. Also, two sponsors in the beginning. Thanks to Cool Water Bikes, CoolWaterBikes.org. They are doing great things in the town of Spokane, Washington. You can log on to their website and see the great things they're doing, helping out kids in trouble, all while, operate, all while operating a full-service bike if you shop. If you've got some old gear you want to donate for those tax purposes, they will do that for you, and uh, they'll take your stuff, and they'll have kids put it back together, restore it, and get it out of there and sell it to somebody who needs it. Uh, so be sure to check out coolwaterbikes.org. There we go. Shall we do the show? I think it's time to do the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast hosted by a has-been that is getting kicked in the nuts by Father Time. I'm going to explain that in very good detail shortly. I'm Pat Bulger. So, how are you? 
<laughs> oh, you guys, I got some stuff to get up off my chest. It's been two weeks since the last show. Two weeks. Whoa, volume all over the place. <laughs> my, my mouse pad stuck. I should almost start over, shouldn't I? Nah. I guess that's why you guys stick around with me, because I don't edit. Right? That's the only reason. Might as well just pot the theme down now, anyway. Just bring it down. Just shut it up. Two weeks, you guys. It's been two weeks since my last show. Uh, I got to spend some time in Portland looking at schools for my kid to spend all of my money in the future. That was a good trip. That was actually a really good trip. Portland's a cool town. I forgot how much I like that town. It's it's a little too, you know, big and hipster. There are a lot of guys in beards and flannel, but um, I'll forgive that um, because they got a lot of good beer there. But let's just say a lot of good things happened. Well, a lot of things happened over the last two weeks. I told you guys I'd be back. Um, I might be a little late, I think. Am I a little late? You guys can tell me if I'm a little late. Um, just due to trying to get the interview for today's show uh, booked, we had some scheduling snafus and all that kind of stuff. But um, here we are. We're, we're able to do it. And a lot of stuff has happened over the last two weeks. And before I get to those, uh, just to let you guys know, you can contact the show. You can, Patrick at packfiller.com. You can send me comments, quirks, anything like that, rants, raves. Also, of course, Facebook, Twitter, all that usual bullshit is out there, and you guys can uh, contact me or the show through any of that. Be sure and log on to iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, and uh, tell your friends about the show. The numbers are going up, and I appreciate you guys doing that. Apparently, you like this new format. You like me talking less. Well, I'm going to talk for a little bit because I got, I got some shit to get off my chest. It's been two weeks, and, and three notable things have happened in my life. Number one, the classics have officially started, and I can finally see them on TV. Thank you, local Comcast Xfinity jackasses for putting uh, NBCSN on my local lineup, which took forever. Uh, number two, the second thing that happened, I'm not able to do shit that I used to. I'm pausing for effect, and I will expand on that. And number three, here comes the profanity. People are way too fucking sensitive these days. So I'm going to expand on those three topics before we get to today's interview. And if you want to fast forward, fine. Go ahead and fast forward. Get to the interview. But if you want to hear... The reason why I have this podcast, which is for, simply for me to talk into a microphone about things that piss me off because I'm an old man, hang out, because hopefully it might be interesting. What was my first thing? The classics. Oh, the classics. I'm so happy to follow the races. I'm so happy these are happening right now. Liege Beston Liege is happening right now while I'm in, in the studio recording this. I haven't had a chance to find out who won. I haven't had a chance to see what's going on, but I have had a chance to see some initial photographs of the fact that the weather is absolutely insane. I watched Flesh Wallone yesterday, got to see, um, uh, shit, why am I forgetting his name? Mr. Movistar, fuck, Valverde, uh, win again. Oh, shit, spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm happy to see those, and it's great to see. But there is one thing I have noticed, and it, it's basically been kind of that topic of the week here over the last two weeks, and I, I had to dip my toe into the water here, into the lake, this disc break controversy. And if you saw or were following after Paris-Roubaix, that knee injury sustained by another Movistar rider, Francisco Ventoso. I hope I pronounced his last name. If not, forgive me, I'm an American. 
it appears that some serious thought needs to be given in covering that actual disc. If you saw his knee, if you looked up the knee, it was it's horrid. It is brutal. Um, and I, you know, I obviously I didn't see the crash. We don't know the details behind it, but do we have to question something? If this guy says it was caused by a disc, holy shit. I've been reading a lot about this issue and many from many opinions from dipshits who have little experience riding in a Peloton at blistering speeds over shitty roads with bodies flying everywhere. And if, if this is indeed an issue with these things, it seems to me that the good old-fashioned brakes have been working just fine, and the push towards discs seems to be, oh, I don't know, from the manufacturers? If this is indeed a case, I, would, I am supporting the UCI and yanking those things out of the Peloton right now. And for those of you guys who say, I ride with my friends all the time and they have discs. Well, you're not flying around shitty roads with, you know, 150, 200 guys crammed into a road that is smaller than your bike path, covered in oil, in water, in shitty gravel, in, in all kinds of mud. And you're not going as fast as they are. When those crashes happen, you have no time to react. And you're flying wherever you can, unless you're Peter Sagan and you can, you know, nail a dismount like he did. I don't want somebody with a saw blade on the front and back of their bikes while I'm flying at them. And I know you guys are saying, well, nobody ever gets hurt by chain rings. Well, they do get hurt by chain rings, you know, and um, it's it's not as often. But if this is indeed an issue, fuck disc brakes. Now they're saying they're, they're going to fix the fixes to cover that disc. And then, that, yeah, great. That'll look really classy, right? Big piece of carbon fiber or plastic on the front and back of the bikes. I guess what I'm saying is why fix what isn't apparently broken? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not trying to sell new Grupos. But I'm so, I guess to hear opinions from people who are not in that perspective, not in a Peloton like that, is is ridiculous. Your point is moot. You have no argument if you've never been in that situation. Yes, I know what you're saying. I'm. What am I saying? I'm saying it's up to the riders and to make that decision, and the UCI needs to make that decision in terms of safety. So, screw the disc brakes. I agree. They work great on a mountain bike. They're awesome. I mean, I've and I've heard people with cyclocross use them great. I don't have disc brakes on my cross bike, and it works just fine. Although I'm pretty shitty at cross. So enough with the disc brake conversation. Let's get angry with it. Let's, let's get it over with. Let's just stop doing it for a while. Shram, Shimano. I don't know, Campy make disc brakes? You guys have got to just relax and understand that these guys, you know, they're out there trying to, trying to live. So there's that. The second issue, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, that I'm not able to, oh, God. That I'm not able to do the shit I used to. Sit back. Uncle Pat's going to tell you a story. You guys, I hurt myself again. Like that Nine Inch Nail song. This time, I was actually pretty sure I was going to be out for a while. I'm, I'm not talking like a couple weeks. I was, I was looking at the potential of five to six weeks of major immobilization and another eight to ten, eight to 12 weeks of recovery. What'd you do, Pat? 
Well, unfortunately, it wasn't some epic kind of event. I wasn't saving a puppy from a burning building or rescuing Helen Hunt from an F5 twister. (laughs) No. I was loading a dumpster with all of my shit. A dumpster. You know, first of all, at what age is getting a dumpster delivered to your house a cool thing? I was excited for this. My wife and I have been talking about this. I, I've been doing some work in the house and around the area um, ever since I kind of broke ground on this on this studio room here. It used to be a large storage room in my basement. I've told you guys about this. And I also, uh, we had a hot tub in our backyard that the heater went out. It had a leak in it. We decided it was time to get rid of it. We couldn't get it out of our gate, so I spent a good week and a half last summer cutting a gigantic five-person hot tub into four pieces. <laughs> and yeah, I came across the yellow jacket's nest and um, all that sort of things and got it out into my garage slash carport and it, it sat there. So rather than loading up my tiny trailer and taking it out to the dump eight times or whatever, my wife and I looked around and we saw all the kind of stuff I had lying around. I, I was going to get rid of some serious shit. It took a full day to make it happen. The hot tub, an old grill that didn't work, yard waste, miscellaneous crap that had been stacking up. No, I'm not a hoarder. At least I don't think I am. So this is what it was going to be. I'm taking a day to do this. And we we rented a 20 cubic foot dumpster. That doesn't sound big, but it's big. So I'm loading a dumpster. Spending a day feeling cool. I'm, I'm feeling really cool. Like dirty shirt soaked in sweat. Cool. You know, in my mind, I was two loads away from random housewives inviting me in for a cool glass of lemonade. Cool. You know that one I'm talking about. Okay. I get the dumpster basically about two thirds of the way full. I go in for a break to have some lunch and it started. My shoulder is wrong with my shoulder started throbbing so I'm thinking to myself okay Pat you tweak something I don't know how but you tweak something that night it got bad you guys it got really bad I couldn't move my arm (laughs) the pain was constant on a scale of one to ten you know for us cyclists who do that it was a steady eight and a half steady Non-stop, just whoa, whoa, whoa. And that was coming from a bike racer. We love pain, but you know, I was convinced in my highly uneducated medical brain that I had torn my rotator cuff badly. I mean, surgery badly. My first announcing gig of the year was two days afterwards, and, and I was a mess. Starting the generator was something to fear. Putting speakers on speaker stands made me cry. Really, I'm I'm not joking. I, w- I, you know, just walked around with it. I tried the sling. The sling didn't work. Um, it was horrible. So I've been off the bike for two weeks now. I told you guys about it before the, before the little break here. The first week was planned. And the second week, of course, this last week was due to stupidity. So what I'm asking is, am I now at the point where I can't lift shit and throw it into a dumpster anymore? Is this what aging is? I mean, I wasn't throwing boulders, for Christ's sake. 
I was throwing like pieces of aluminum siding, some yard waste. And I hurt my shoulder so severely that I thought, I, from what I read, like I say, the internet's a bad thing when it comes to this kind of stuff. So what I read is I'm potentially looking at rotator cuff surgery, five to six weeks of no driving, and then 12 weeks after that of recovery. I was thinking, shit, that's it. Leadville's out. My, you know, everything I've been training for is out. Announcing this year is going to be miserable because I can't lift a speaker to put it on a stand. And a lot of these gigs I do by myself. Thankfully, after about five days, I am able to get full movement. I'm holding my arm above my head right now, and it is a great feeling. It's still a bit tender. I, I still feel it a little bit every so often. I'm like Wolverine, but I just take a lot longer to heal. Old man Logan here. Not to mention, I, f I came to the conclusion that my doctor sucks. I'm not going to call my doctor's name out on a podcast, but I called this guy, left messages, and the only response I got was from a confused nurse. Did you say you tore your rotator cuff or you wanted a checkup on a rotator cuff injury you had us check on earlier? And I wanted to say, lady, look at your notes. You have a file on me. When have I come in for a rotator cuff tear? I gotta get a new doctor. So that was my last week. Walking around like a poor broken wing. Take these broken wings. So that was the two things that I came in. And the third one is, the third thing before I get to the interview, you guys, today, that I gotta get off my chest, is that people are way too fucking sensitive Okay, I've talked on this show before about this, but things are getting out of hand, okay? I think I talked about it before the Tainted Blood, um, uh, Jill Yesko in interview about taking a joke. And now it's, it's, it's just getting worse. People, first of all, people in online discussion groups need to lighten up. I am getting sick of reading about people getting all offended because someone doesn't take a joke. Or just doesn't scroll past a joke. I'm going to admit something to you guys. Come on, just get up close here. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to just whisper it here. I listen to other podcasts. You know, I don't know even worse. I even listen to other cycling podcasts. You know, you got to listen to other ones. I'm a, I'm a cycling fanatic. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to just be the only people, only person talking about some of these things. Got to, you know, shore up the competition <laughs> because we're such a competitive group. But I, I do have some things to say. Number one, if I sound as boring as some of the other hosts do on some of these podcasts, I'm not going to name names because that's just stupid and petty. But please tell me if I do. I don't know what my own voice sounds like. I got headphones on right now. I sound sexy. I mean, like lemonade sexy. <laughs> I can't believe how emotionless some of these guys are. Okay, so anyway, back to the topic. One show in particular that I'm not going to mention, I gave a listen to recently. Pretty qualified guys, good content, well, show well put together. You might have an understanding of what it is so far. I was listening to it, and and... It, it wasn't bad, but then they went off on my friends at the Velominati. 
especially the rules. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something to people about the rules. I know Frank. He's been on this show several times. He's a good guy. Ridden with him once. I know the Velominati. I read the I read their their posts. I, uh, I I follow along on some of the things they do. Some of you people out there need to lighten the fuck up and get a joke. You, it's almost like you're the type of people who follow the Bible like it's carved in stone. All right. The rules are guidelines coded in hyperbole. If you don't know what hyperbole is, look it up. I listened to one of the hosts on this podcast rant about how uptight the Velominati are. First of all, how ironic is that? Frank might give, it, give me some shit when I ride beside him and ask, ask how many more miles are left in the ride. And this, this is from an actual moment. He, he gave me a smile, a little grin because I didn't ask in kilometers. He's not going to stick a pump in my spokes. He's going to smile at me, let me know the ride only has so many K left or that we're just beginning and I'm in deep shit. Oh, God, you guys got to lighten up. For those of you out there spouting the rules to other, you need to shut up too, okay? Unless you're busting balls. I guess it comes from having a history in the sport here. I talk about the good old days a lot. Maybe that's why I'm the guy who can't, you know, lift shit into a dumpster anymore. Maybe I am that old. I took the time to learn the proper style, techniques, and terminology. It came from a 20, 30-plus year career in the sport. I'm proud of working my way through that learning curve. When you show up at a mid at a, at a race in your mismatched kit, hell, with your helmet on while you're still in the car, or even got your screws, skewers in the wrong direction, I notice these things. I'm not going to yell at you, but I might, when the time is right, help you out with some friendly advice. Hey, dude, if, you, if you're in a pack, you want those skewers facing inward, it looks cooler, and somebody with their front wheel isn't going to nab your back wheel and hook it. Right, I'm going to give you some friendly advice. And that's what the rules are. If you want to look the part, put your glasses over the outside of the helmet strap. If you don't want to, fine. Just don't get all pissed off when I or somebody else lets you know how it's done. So really understand that, that we as a culture aren't getting the jokes anymore. When stand-up comics can't go to college campuses because they're so pissed at people getting upset and offended over a joke they make, over a person wearing lycra in a you know and looking fat in their spandex, something's wrong. There, I feel better. I think. Oh yeah, podcast Jamie Palinetti. <laughs> the cyclist's filmmaker is my guest on today's show. If you know of Jamie's work or if you follow Jamie's cycling career, you know what's going on. He was uh, he came to fruition in the what I still call that ca- that Camelot days of American cycling. And he and I got a chance to talk about those years and talk about um, how cycling has grown, ebbed, and flowed in in the U.S. Uh, throughout his years on the bike. And uh, I, it was a good talk. And he has some some cold hard words of of wisdom and truth for those of us who think we're three sprint wins away 
from a pro contract. So before I get to it, let's thank our friends at Man Can, shall we? Put a brewery in your fridge. Do it. Man Can. Click on the lick on pack. Lick. <laughs> Fuck, I'm all over the place. Click on the link on packfiller.com. Get yourself a Man Can. Shit, you guys, I took an empty growler to Portland. Oh, God, they have some great beers in that town. It's not a very good idea of me to have one of those rolling around in the back of my car. A thermal insulated um, growler I have. And, uh, you know, having lunch someplace. God, this is a good beer. I think I'll go get the, man, the, the, the insulated growler out of the back of the car and have some beer in the hotel. I might be a bit heavier. I might be a lot heavier. I got some work to do. Jamie Palinetti on the pack filler. All right, guys. Today's guest started cycling competitively in 1986. And then get this, uh, quickly grew from there. Entry into the pro ranks in just two years after that. Definitely known as a solid, consistent rider. Career continues even today. Um, accomplished filmmaker also, this man is, with several cycling-based documentaries, including The Hard Road and Pro. You've probably seen him. If not, you're going to hopefully get another chance to. Let's welcome to the show Jamie Palinetti. How are you, man? I'm great, Patrick. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Hey, you know, just for some of um, some of my listeners here who might not have been around with the sport as long as we have, uh, let's get a little perspective here. Uh, what got you started into the sport, and and how did it go from there? Yeah, it was just. Uh, I like to think that it was fate. <laughs> I was standing at one of our popular surf spots where I lived at 54th Street and Newport Beach, and one of my good friends that I had surfed with most of my life um, rode up on a bike next to me and the surf had been flat for three weeks and we were just looking at the flat ocean and he said, why don't you come for a ride with me? And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he'll go for a ride. And he said, yeah, I have another bike. You know, let's go for a ride. You're not going to surf. It's been flat. You know, I know you're going crazy. And um, that really, uh, long story short, that was the beginning of it. He was... Uh, he was a category two rider at the time. And, you know, when I got on the bike the first time and went for a ride with him, he was just blown away. You know, he just couldn't believe it. And I, I didn't think it was any big deal, but I guess the speeds we were going were, you know, something he, he wasn't used to seeing from a guy that was on a bike, you know, for the first time, obviously I rode a bicycle growing up and, yeah. you know, and raced some BMX and everything, but I had never, I'd never been on a road bike ever. Well, and to go from, and as I stated in the intro, to go from a, a Cat 4 to a Pro in two years, let's be honest, is is not common. It's fairly mutant-oriented. Um, what was it about you that made that transition co- so quickly? Well, I'll tell you, I think it was a number of things, but this is something I've preached, I don't know how many times since the very beginning of my cycling career, is that you know, world-class pros are, are born. They're, they're not made. And it's not something that we have control of. It's not something I can really take any pride in. It's just some genetic kind of, uh, I don't know, throwback to a time when, you know, people were different. It's kind of the way that I look at it. And so, you know, I played all of sports growing up because I was born and raised in Southern California. And um, uh, one of the things I had done was always 
ran, you know, in baseball and football. And also, you know, we would, we would run for time in, in baseball and football against our teammates. I never ran track competitively, but I knew what my times were uh, in the 40 and the 100 and the mile, and they were always among the fastest you know, anywhere. And so obviously I, I had this motor based on the size of my physiology that yeah. allowed me to, um, be able to run these various distances in very fast paces throughout my life, ever since I was in grade school. So, you know, I mean, yes, took care of myself. Yes. I was in the weight room every day. Yes. I yeah. did all the right things. But the kinds of times that I could run are, are not something you get from training. You know? Now, when you say it's a motor, do you think it's it's predominantly that physical aspect of it? Or do you think that the, the mental element comes into it? I've known a lot of really high-end cyclists who might not be in that in that perfect season shape, but who have that that mental ability to just either block out or just to suffer more. Is it Or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both, sure, and that, and yes, every every great cyclist has that ability. But the higher you go, you know, when you get out of the regional area and you get out yeah. of the local amateur and you get out of the na- national level amateurs and you get to the to the world class pros, you know, almost everybody can do that. Yeah, everybody to some extent. And again, we're splitting hairs, but to some extent, they can do that. The the ability to make it there in the first place is purely physiological, 100%. There's there's no, you can't train to be a world-class pro cyclist, you know, which a lot of people don't want to hear, but it's just true. You know, I'm talking about if you're going to be doing, you know, world-class stage races like we had plenty of here or, you know, professional national championships. You put any of these guys in the lab all the way back to the late 80s, and they're all going to blow numbers that are similar. Yeah. And, and you know, in the top 0.1% of the various, you know, measuring sticks that we have, VO2 max, heart size, strength to weight ratio, lactate recovery, they're all going to be in the world-class zone, uh, all of them. So, and that's what I mean by you're born, you're not made. Yeah. Now, yeah, any cyclist can improve a, a vast, huge amount oh, by yeah. doing the right things, training well, optimizing the motor size. But you can't make your lungs bigger, and you can't make your heart bigger, you know, to, to a great degree. And you can't make your, your muscles stronger for your body weight, you know, to, to a great enough degree that, you know, it's the old adage, you can't make a donkey into a racehorse, and you really can't, not, not at that level. So that's why I say I was born and, and not made, you know. When, when I was in college, I weighed 180 pounds. This is before I ever raced bikes. And we would run the mile for my baseball team in tennis shoes and gym shorts, and I could do it in between 410 and 415 every time. Oh, God. So, you know, that's, that's before I lost the muscle that I needed to lose to be a world-class pro cyclist. I was at 180 pounds. My race weight in the early 90s was 158. You know, that's 20 yeah. pounds lighter with the same motor. Yeah. So, and that, yeah. Just, that just goes faster. That just goes a hell of a lot faster. Yeah, that's just physics. You know, more horsepower, less weight. That's, that's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. 
So there, there might not be, unfortunately, a lot of people that uh, remember the the days of uh, Chevrolet LA Sheriff's team. Um, although, let's be honest, a really dominant force in the U.S. for a lot of years. You were a, a, a competitor on that team. Um, for those who don't remember those beautiful days, what was that experience like riding with a club like that? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, yeah, Jeff Pierce and I, Jeff Pierce, of course, of 7-Eleven fame and, you know, yeah. winning the final stage of the Tour of France. He and I started that team. We were the first two pros that Greg Christofferson hired when the, when the club went from a local regional racing club to a professional team. And so, yeah, Jeff and I really kind of built the, built the team alongside Greg over the next few years. And um, it was just incredible. You know, it was, <clears throat> I'm, I'm kind of doing a lot of work on, on that era now because, you know, I, I kind of look at it as before the fall. Yeah. And um, it was kind of the golden era of, of the birth of American pro cycling. I, I just had somebody send me a, a video of the Tour of America's race from the very beginning of 1990 that I did. And that was the, it was in Puerto Rico and Venezuela. And, you know, it was a UCI world-class stage race. Pedro Delgado was there. He had just won the Tour de France a year before. And, that was my first experience racing with Malcolm Elliott, who would be my teammate a couple years later. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the point is, before that era, before the late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't any pro cycling in the United States, you know, short of the course classic, and, and that wasn't a completely pro race. And um, by the early 90s, we had a full-on, you know, pro circuit in in the United States, and and all of those riders from the late 80s to the mid-90s were the pioneers of that. You know, there, there wasn't such a thing as a D3 pro cycling team in the United States in the late 80s. Our American commerce team who turned pro in 1989 was really one of, if not the first American-based pro cycling. Yeah. So it was incredible to, to be around during that era with all of those guys, with, you know, with Okowitz and Schuler and, and, and Petty John and, and all those guys, and of course all the riders, who really took the sport and turned it into a, a legitimate, you know, professional circuit through the through the early '90s. Just incredible experience. You know, and and being somebody who was during that time, I probably I, a lot of my listeners probably get tired of me preaching about how that the, you know those those glory days. I guess I refer to, even though you know I might not have been an active participant in them, but I was involved in it. I was um, you know I was racing. I was involved in the races that were here. I was um, you know competing on the national level, not like yeah. you guys were doing. But it was such an amazing time, and I you know I could just sit here and wax philosophical on my rocking chair and talk about how beautiful those days were. Um, but I don't know if, I, I guess it was, it was almost like you had to be there to have appreciated it because I find a lot of listeners don't, don't understand what it was like when you had this races going all over the country and we had so many pro teams, even, even small teams like GS Mangoni, you know, were, were still competing at that level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was, there was a hierarchy, you know, for sure. And, and the talent, yeah, you know trickled down all the way really far to 10 or 15 teams that, you know, were going all over the country. And then any, any of the pockets that you raced in like Spokane that had a big race, you know, that was the opportunity for the, for the local guys in that area 
to step up and say, hey, let me let me see if I can race against these guys. How fast are they going? You know what 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 does it mean to be a pro? And and that's that's kind of where the riders got cultivated from. You know, from all of the little individual areas uh, of the country that the, these races popped up in and continued, you know, year after year. And and um, yeah, it was an it was really an incredible time. And you know, then we would have guys come over um, from the you know, the world tour basically, or, you know, what is now UCI, you know, pro tour when they'd come over to do the tour du pont and, and the U S pro championships and Philly week and and all of those races. And they just couldn't believe the level over here that, you know, how high it had gotten, how fast through, through the mid, through the early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just really, really a special time. Oh man. So Throughout your career, um, you you had a it seemed like a love hate relationship. You retired twice during your career, um, but almost like the mafia, it kept bringing you back in, so to speak. Uh, what were your reasons for retiring, and, and what kept what kept bringing you back? Yeah, that's a great question. There were there were different things, you know. When I retired in '95, um, I was only 30 years old, and right at the top, you know, I mean our team was definitely one of the dominant teams in the country. We had Coors Light, obviously, and I think it was Motorola was sponsoring that team at that time. And you had Saturn, the birth of Saturn had started, you know, there were a number of teams, Subaru, there were a number of teams around, but certainly Chevy was right there. And, you know, I had just been doing it for so long, starting in 1987, which was my first full season. I did over a hundred races that year. 100 race days, and, um, you know, 87, 88, 89, 99, 92, 93, 94, 95, I was just, I was tired, you know, that was, that was part of it, um, that was kind of the obvious part, but really the part that ended up being, you know, a mistake, I think, was that I, I was just about to get married, and I had those social pressures uh, of, you know, getting a quote real job because even though we were doing quite well as pro cyclists then, it still was a relatively unknown sport in the mainstream of Southern California. And so um, I just had those pressures and I, I got offered a job. I got offered a job to be the editor of Bicycle Guide magazine. Yeah. And, um, I just, you know, I had always been a writer and um, had written many things during my career and it was just one of those things where I just kind of took a step back and, and did it. And then, you know, probably not very long after that, regretted it. <laughs> oh, the real world, right? Yeah. Uh, so now, and then, and what brought filmmaking into this as a career path? Yeah. So it's an interesting story. So in, uh, in 19, at the beginning of the season in 1990, I met this woman who um, would end up being my wife. And she was finishing her master's in screenwriting from UCLA. And um, the very first thing I ever did in filmmaking was in 1990. I did a short documentary with her for her master's kind of thesis project, which she had to do on cycling. And um, that hooked me immediately into filmmaking and storytelling from a visual standpoint. And that, you know, that was in 1990. I still had five more years of kind of pro cycling ahead of me. But the minute that I retired um, in 95 and, and went to work at Bicycle Guide, I, I went back to film school. And I had been working those four years with her on various projects. I had done stuff 
with a lot of the cable networks um, locally, just as a kind of in the pack perspective, kind of, I guess, in a, a kind of assistant producer's role. You know, um, I was just interested in filmmaking because that woman, I was living with her and she was writing screenplays and she was, you know, um, pursuing her own career as a filmmaker. And, you know, when you live with someone like that, obviously you, you share the passion and that's how I got introduced to it. And then to cut it, just never went back, you know. Yeah. A lot of people know that the, starting in 95, I really started when I went back to film school uh, and started studying theater, um, you know, in the L.A. area. And <clears throat> that's more than 20 years ago now. now. Where did the hard road come into that? Uh, what, through inspiration what, and the making of that, pro, the process of making that film, when did that come into it? Yeah, same year, 1995. Um, I wrote a 20-page treatment for the film in 1995 and it basically you know I'd been all over the world and all over the country and run into so many people that were interested in the personalities and interested in the lifestyle and interested in you know why we did this thing and, and what we were doing it for and I just kind of had the, the vision that people are interested in this as a human drama story and it had never been told. There really was no reality TV, so it was before the birth of reality TV. And I just thought, you know, a documentary is the perfect place for everybody to have all these questions answered that I get time after time after time on the airplanes, in the airports, staying at the host housing, because, you know, that was a very popular thing to do oh, yeah. about half the time back then. You know, if I came to Spokane to do your guys' race, it's a good chance I was going to stay one of the local writers' houses or one of the local supporters. And then it was, you know, all those kind of dinner table conversations every night just were endless, and the curiosity was endless, and, and that's how the hard road was born. So that was 1995. You know, it would be six years later, uh, five years later in 2000, before I could legitimately make the movie. And that has to do with the progression of the digital era. Yeah you know, and, and the availability of filmmakers and, and cost and funding and all those things. And, and that's a long story in and of itself. But again, I'll just thumbnail it. Basically, you know, if I were to make The Hard Road in 95 on 35 millimeter film, the movie oh, would have cost $2 million. Yeah. So, you know, there's no way it could have been done. But in 2001, it was a realistic, you know, um, project. So that's when it got made. Yeah. Well, I've, you know, I, I've talked to you through emails and stuff about like that. I also, uh, I teach theater and I, when I'm not doing this and I am also teaching kids film stuff and it's unbelievable how they have access, how the access to, um, high quality digital cameras. I'm looking at a GoPro on my desk right now is available right now that wasn't available to you probably at the time and how much more amazing that process and simplistic that process could have been. That's right. I mean, it, it, there was no such thing. I mean, I remember I, would, I had my own commercial production company for four years doing commercials. And I remember, you know, it really started because my director of photography at the time came to me with, you know, I think it was a GL1 or something. It was actually probably before that, you know, an early Canon camera. Yeah. And, um, and we said, geez, you know, we can shoot commercials for people now for a couple thousand bucks for five grand. Yeah. You know, and it, yeah, it was just unbelievable. And it just opened up the entire world of filmmaking that hadn't been possible before. And, and, and um, yeah, it was, it was just a really great time to, to be trying to tell stories. And, you know, it continues today. Yeah, yeah. the availability for, 
for the kids today is just no, fantastic. Yeah. It's not so, fair. So what yeah. what was the the reception for the hard road like when that when you first brought that out? Uh, I mean, I don't even have words to describe it. Really, it was just mind blowing. I mean, just mind blowing. You know, we basically self distributed and then made a bunch of deals with little small distribution companies that were more, mostly sports oriented all over the world. The movie got bought in twenty countries. You know, and um, everywhere I went. Everywhere after the hard road, people had seen the movie. And um, this was before the internet, really. You know, yeah. the movie came out at the end of 2002. And um, I mean, yeah, the internet was there, but it, it was nothing like it was today. And we were only shipping hard copy DVDs, you know. And um, it was just unbelievable. There's just no other word to describe it. It, it was just mind blowing the support and the reaction. And I could be you know, in the middle of nowhere um, in China, and somebody had seen the hard road. Wow. Yeah, it wow. was it was phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal. And then, you know, later, much, much later, when I came back and started racing Masters, which is just a few years ago, five, six years ago, again, we would travel around with this monster media team that Chris DeMarkey and I started, and um, wherever I went, these young kids, these 21-year-old kids that see me go, oh, the hard road. And I'm thinking, that's, that's unbelievable. You know, the, the longevity of the movie. Yeah, they're, and, they're looking at DVDs like we're looking at vinyl. You know, they're, they're, it's so old. You know, shut up. Uh, so yeah. so did pro come in immediately, the, the film pro did immediately come after that where you guys went, oh, crap, this is this did well. We've got to build on this. we got to, we got to do a second one. Now, pro, as for the listeners, where the hard road focuses on a larger look into the world of professional racing, the the season and, and working through that, pro focuses just on that one race, on, on Philly. And uh, to have made that, that focus to go into just one day obviously had to be a lot of pressure. But was that an immediate, we got to do this now, we got to make this happen? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Um, well, you know, you were around at that time, and so, you know, the, the technological advancements were just going through the roof. Yeah. And like I said, uh, you know, the hard road was shot, I think, on a GL1 mostly by Greg um, uh, St. John's, who has been the director of photography for Criminal Minds for the last seven or eight years. Oh so, you know, he was a quality, quality DP and uh, just fantastic. But we were shooting on 
like, you know, very um, rudimentary digital uh, cameras. By the time I got ready to do Crow, which was <clears throat> only a year and a half after Hardwood came out, I'll tell you how that happened in a minute. We had this camera called the DVX 100, which I'm sure you remember. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, we, we, this Panasonic camera, <laughs> we were just freaking blown away. I mean, we're holding it up next to 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter stuff, and we're going, man, it, it's, it's not 35 millimeter, but it's not that far off. Yeah. You know, and um, the, so that camera, I mean, I really think that camera was partly the reason that I decided I could do pro with the scope that I wanted to do it. And so just to back up, you know, yeah. I've always pitched the hard road as, you know, the hard road is a story about giving up everything, sacrificing everything to follow your dreams. And this happens to be set in the world, this niche world of professional cycling, you know, um, really kind of small time domestic USA professional cycling. But pro, and so that that story is much more universal. Absolutely, yeah. That's what I was going to say. is a very universal theme. People can attach to that and and understand it the same way. You know, I guess breaking away was a even though, even though a narrative film is something that they people can get behind. They understand that they connect to the characters. That's right, and, and in fact, you know, if you listen to the Hard Road, and many people have commented on this, it's Keith David doing the narration, and Keith David at the time was the A-list actor in terms of voiceover in the country. He was in the top three or five for sure. He was doing BMW, Army. You know, he's a world-class oh, yeah. A-list actor. The way that I got him to do the narration on the hard road was I sent him a rough cut with me doing the narration so he could just watch the movie. And he, I literally was out for a ride one day, and I, I did this to about 15 A-list actors thinking, you know, very small chance any of them are going to do this because I have no budget <laughs> what to the pay hell? them. But, but what the hell? Yeah. So I, I, I had a connection to his agent <laughs> at Innovative, and, um, um, you know, I, I called her and I said, you know, can, you think you can get him to watch this movie? You know, I, I think he's perfect. He, he, I, I would love for him to do it. And she was just, she's such a great person. And um, she said, you know, send it to me. I'll, I'll take a look at it, and if I think it's good, I'll send it to him. I said, great. So maybe a week later, I'm, I'm out on a ride and I come home and I had an answering machine and I play the messages on my answering machine. I get home from the ride and there's this message that it says, Jamie, this is Keith David. I just want you to know I love your movie. I want to do it. Call me. And he, and he you know, left his number and I thought, fuck, that's just incredible. You know? But so he, he, when I talked to him on the phone, he said, Jamie, this story, this is my story. This yeah. is the story of me coming out of the ghetto to be uh, a world-class actor. It's just that these guys are bike riders, but everything they went through, I had to go through. Yeah. And so, you know, the story was universal that way, where, where pro is not that, you know. Pro really is not that. Pro is the story of the best guys in the world, in the country, trying to win the biggest, most important race of their year. Yeah. And so it's much more you know, for the pure cycling fan that be able to go behind the scenes and look at these 10 or 15 world-class pro guys and what their teams try to do to win the biggest race of the year. And in that, I think it's, you know, it, it, it stands on its own as I, I like to think well, a really great way for cyclists to learn about pro cycling. Well, and to be honest, you had access in, in all of these films 
to quite a few riders of significance. And I can only assume that's because, you know, in a series, in, in a certain concept, they trusted you, you would race against them. They knew you as a familiar face. Um, yeah, do you that's think the, that's the only reason that's the only yeah. way I could go to Chris Horner's home and Bobby Julek's home and, you know, and, and go into these guys' team meetings because they a hundred percent trusted me because like Horner says, you know, it's a good old boy network out there. Yeah. And I've been facing at the top level since the late eighties and everybody knew me and, and that's the only way it happened. That's the only way either of these films happened. Did you find any resistance along the way in any of these, with any of these people? No, 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 none, zero, you know, cause I, like I said, you know, once you've, once you've sat in line with these guys yeah. for three hours in the rain, you know, day after day, you know, it's just, there is this camaraderie. And I, I think that there was also, a, you know, for both films, there was a kind of, I don't know, uh, there was a general consensus that most people don't really understand what we're what we're doing and this is helping you know yeah. it's really helping and uh and everybody you know after the hard road everybody had seen it and like i said the reception was you know overwhelming and i was just really flattered and so pro was a no-brainer i mean they they called me and and said you know can do you have interest in doing wow. a, a film around this race series and of course U.S. Pro Championships had always been my favorite race in Philly, uh, my absolute favorite. And I said, are you kidding? Let's do it. And, and so that's how it began. Do you think a film like this, like those could be made today as, as with that type of access? It seems like as times change and with some of the obvious, you know, we all know the elephant in the room, this troubles the sports have had over the past years. Do you think that accessibility would still be there? Well, you know, a lot of people have tried. Yeah. Uh, there have been a number of other big, big documentary films by, quote, filmmakers with <laughs> million-dollar budgets yeah. that have not done well. And um, so to answer your question, if it's not going to be me doing the movie, yeah. I, I think it has to be somebody like me. It has to be somebody that the writers trust, that are you know, they know we're going to tell an honest story, not pull any punches, but at the same time, I'm not going to throw somebody under the bus for publicity. Yeah. You know, and so, um, I, I don't know, Patrick, I, I, I have been, you know, I've been offered the opportunity to make movies about cycling probably every year really? since Pro has come out, at least one or two a year, and I haven't done it. You know, I did that little race day series on the Masters, yeah. um, you know, team because that's such a little niche thing, and um, that was a great experience, very low budget, and you know, but but again, it's a it's a, it's a different perspective, Masters racing. I don't want to talk about that right now, but the point is that not I haven't had the opportunity present itself to me where I see the story that I want to tell and um, have. Uh, the money behind it to do it. I, I don't know. I don't know if any, I don't know if it's, I just have to say, why, where are the movies? You know, yeah. why haven't they been done? And I think a big, a big reason is like you said, it's, it's been the doping scandals. It's been the people afraid to talk. It's been the secrecy, 
you know, and certainly if our sport's going to move forward, we need transparency. And, you know, I have been kind of pitching this story around as pro has come out, you know, digitally now. And I don't know, you know, it's been, it's been 12 years since I made pro. We shot pro in 2004. So I, I don't know. Um, and I, I may be too old, you know, now. I mean, I don't know if I go to TJ, you know, and say, hey, TJ, you know, can I make a movie? I, I mean, certainly, I'd, you know, go to Aquawitz and Schuler first, but yeah. then eventually when I get to the riders, I don't know how they were going to, how they would treat me because I didn't race with these guys. You know, that this new generation, I, I was not a part of their upbringing. So I don't know. Well, you say it was made in 2004, and, and do you think the experience of racing professionally is still the same, or how has it changed? Well, yeah, no, it's not the same by any yeah. means. I mean, um, what is specifically do you think? I mean, what are the big things that have happened? Obviously, it's become a higher money involvement. Um, there, you yeah. know. I mean, yes and no. I mean, internationally, you know, we have Americans now, uh, more than ever, racing internationally at an international level in Europe. And then they come over here for one race a year, you know, to California, basically, and, and maybe one or two others. So the level of internationally, you know, based drivers, yeah, it's, it's up there and the money's big. Um, I don't think comparatively it's any bigger than it was in the early 90s. And certainly, certainly I will, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would say, there's no way that the domestic scene is as fruitful for pro, you know, riders based in the United States as it was in the early nineties. I mean, I know now I know all these guys here, you know, and I know what they make and I know what the team's budgets are and they're nowhere close. And it's, it's, and the sheer number of riders that we had at that time, um, is it's completely different. We do have riders who are fitter and faster, but they're not, and that we don't have the teams to support those riders anymore. Or, or the race series. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, so, I mean, that's one way that it's, it's changed. Um, I think, uh, I think obviously the whole doping, um, uh, generation that went through that time period, you know, changed the sport. And now we're trying to come out of that. So that has changed things. And, you know, I, I just don't know, Patrick, there are so many different ways that the sport has changed. Um, in some ways, it's you know it's it's more visible than it was I think in the early '90s or even you know through the turn of the century when I was racing, especially with Net Zero, made the hard road. But it, in some other ways, it's it's not it's not really you know as big uh, as it was when when Lance was winning tours. So I don't know. Hopefully, it's an change. Hopefully it's an ebb and, ebb and flow of some sort, you know, where we where it's obviously the pendulum's going to swing one way and we're going to have less attracting numbers and then maybe we'll get back to something else. I mean, I remember when mountain biking became huge, road cycling did dip in numbers, at least domestically during that time. Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I've, I've always, I kind of have always preached the simple answer and to me, the simple answer in the United States, because I've worked in advertising with my own commercial company, and you know, I I know media a little bit more than the average you know cycling guy. Um, in our country, professional sports is a trickle down 
uh, economic system based on television. And, um, yeah, you have fan patronage and money is raised that way. But without some kind of consistent entertainment on either television or what would now be the Internet, streaming, you know, um, pro cycling is never going to have the ad dollars, and it's an advertising-based system. So um, that's just how the big ad agencies think. Oh, you know, no. they, that's, that's just how it is. And so we're always going to be limited. The money's just not going to trickle down. Well, and, and I've talked to, again, I go back to mountain bike racing. I've talked to some mountain bike racers who talk about the concept that, that certain styles of racing are disappearing because they don't have that attractability of sponsors, of fan bases, and of that TV element. You're not going to get it when unless you see something bigger, better, faster, bolder. Right. Right. I look at, you know, I'm a surfer. I grew up surfing. And so I look at what the World Surfing Tour has done in the last four or five years and the development of the content that they're streaming for their World Tour. And, you know, they have just revolutionized the surf contest based around, we can call it TV. It's really streaming, but it's all the same thing now. It's all one screen. Yeah. And their, you know, their product of bringing pro surfing to the viewer has just revolutionized the amount of money that's gone into the sport. And it's now because you have a fan base that is, you know, being um, driven by advertising dollars and then it's trickled down. And, you know, think where surfing was 10 years ago compared to where it is now. I mean, my God, you can't even make comparisons. So I really think that's what somebody needs to do. And that was kind of what my movies were at the time. You know, I was, Hey, now, if we could do a series or something like this, you know, some reality series or, or, or a series of kind of, you know, docu-style television around the, the, the racers in a way that the American public would watch, the advertising dollars would trickle down to the sport itself. And I think the Internet allows a lot for that. I mean, you know, here I am talking on a microphone, and that's an example of that, that there are people who have access to this. You know, when there was a time when, when it was TV or radio, and that was it. I mean, I know you remember the days when we would wait for coverage of the Tour de France to happen through an, an issue of Velo News or something like right. that. And so I'm sure there are sources where filmmakers such as yourself with Pro and the Hard Road and new style of films like that, we now, there is now an avenue in which to pre- present that. Um, and I've noticed that, for example, you're, you're producing your own uh, webisode series, and, and, and you seem to be presenting that, and I've, I've watched some of that through uh, the Complex, uh, that, that series you're doing right now. And it seems like that is a much more presentable avenue to get work out rather than waiting through the old classic channels. That's right. And that is a, the, the revolution of the Internet and of filmmaking is, is is happened and you know I, I live in LA I am in the industry day in day out I've had my own performing arts theater and film company there for 15 years and and it's something we talk about every day you know every day we talk about the, the next generation of bringing content to the public in a profitable you know um, marketable uh, 
way that isn't being done now, and we're we're just at the forefront. I mean, it's just it's just beginning now, really to to completely 100% change. You know, the old studio system of making film and TV that's finished. Um, you know, and so uh, the the new system is developing as we speak. And you're right. I mean, if you look at me, I'm just completely as a filmmaker, I have one feature film in development right now that we're, you know, raising money for, we hope to shoot. I have two um, web web series that uh, are in one form of development or production or, or another. And, you know, it's, it's ongoing and, and Hollywood is looking at this kind of content and saying, okay, you know, we, we have the ability to create content now much more cheaply than we did before. Now we just have to figure out a profitable model, you know, to bring it to the viewers all over the world. And, and that's happening as we speak. And, you know, that, that isn't my field of expertise, but it's one that I am constantly paying attention to. And, you know, with the, with the development of algorithm based, you know, um, uh, really, um, viewer yeah. um, targeting, you know, that that's everyone in Hollywood now agrees, and it might change in a year or two, but everyone agrees that's the future. So you know, al- algorithm-based uh, viewer content targeted at niche audiences based on their preferences. You know, Netflix pioneered it. Oh, yeah. And now, you know, that's the future of filmmaking and of television and, of course, of covering bike racing, if we want to circle it all the way back to that. So Pro is being re-released, um, and 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 that's how you and my conversation originally started, where I approached you about coming on the show, and, and you said, I think it's a great time to kind of talk about this. What was the motivation for a re-release, and and how is it being re-released? Again, it was it was the same exact conversation yeah. that, that we kind of alluded to earlier, and that every everywhere I've gone and every day I get email there or you know people contact me on facebook wanting to know about the about the hard rotor pro and and it just came to a point the dvds were out of print i just kind of let them go it'd been long enough this was many years ago and i they weren't being sold anywhere and people wanted to see the movie i couldn't believe how many people still wanted to see the movie you know i mean largely because guys like sayers and thomas Craven and Kurt Stockton and, um, you know, Freddie Rodriguez and Bobby Julek and, and Jim Copeland and, um, oh, yeah. you know, on and on. All these guys, they're still in the sport. So I think that's, that's probably largely due to that. But the, the point is that I, I, got to, I got to a place where I said, okay, if I can find the time, you know, I can go into the edit studio and re-digitize Pro, you know, into a... a a pseudo HD format, recolor correct it, and make it available online. And, you know, for a couple bucks. And everyone all over the world can see the movie. And so that was the onus for me doing it. You know, I just went into the edit room for a couple weeks and literally redigitized every single shot, shot by shot, recolor corrected the film, turned it into a streamable HD you know, I say pseudo HD because yeah. it wasn't shot in HD, but now you watch it in HD format. And, uh, and so now people can go online and own the movie for two bucks and whatever it is, two bucks and change and, and watch it anywhere on any device 
anywhere that there's internet access. All right. So, so where can we find it then? I, I personally, I, I, this, as doing my research for this show, I feel like an idiot because I haven't had a chance to see it. So, where can we find it? <laughs> I'm going to send you the link. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the the best way to do it is uh, you just have to go to my Vimeo page. You okay. know, you can just um, either search for my name on Vimeo uh, or um, go to my Vimeo page and. And on there, you know, you're gonna you're gonna find the movie um, available uh, on my Facebook. You know, Jamie Polinetti. There's links there to the movie um, where people can can find it. And you know, that's that's part of my challenge now is just letting everybody know uh, where the link exists. But um, I can give you the link right now if you if you'd like to for your viewers. It's just Vimeo.com yeah. and then backslash on demand backslash pro the movie. Perfect. And yeah. You know, or gosh, I mean today any, any just searching around Facebook or searching around the internet for pro the movie or for my name or at my, I guess my website is really the easiest. I should have thought of that. Jamie Um, and the movies are there under documentary. Is the, is the hard road going to make the jump soon? I would like to. I mean, that you know, honestly, it's it's a it's a lot of work oh, yeah. um, for, for me to do it, and I I am you know busy with a number of projects. And I kind of wanted to see how the reaction to Pro would be, and everybody's been really encouraging. So I think I will do it here shortly. You know, the difference again, um, the difference is that the quality of Pro. Um, was shot on a much better camera. Well, actually yeah. five cameras, but five cameras, you know, going when we shot pro all the same, you know, all set up identically, all DVX 100. And, um, so, you know, the quality of the film from uh, a base media standpoint is much higher than the hard road, but uh, I, I can do it with the hard road. It's just not going to be as easy. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, we're all still watching Stars and Water Carriers for crying out loud. So, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so before I let you go, man, over uh, over the length of your career, um, you're still killing it and you've been able to maintain that really highly competitive level. Um, you know, we talked at the outset of the show about that engines and stuff like that, but what keeps somebody like you going, man? What keeps you you going and and hopping on the bike and and racing? Well, like you said, I mean, I retired actually three times, you know, at 95 <laughs> and then came back and started racing again in 97 and built the team up to be able to make the hard road. And that was, you know, a great experience. And then I stopped again in 2003 and then I didn't start again for five more years. And so I've had big breaks. So that's, that's part of it, you know, is that I get hungry and I come back. I think the other part of it is that um, a long time ago when I, when I first retired in 95, I had this very naive view, um, uh, really a spoiled view, that I thought I was going to be able to find people, um, you know, in my professional life that had the same dedication, the same passion, the same integrity as all the people that I had worked with as a pro cyclist. And um, I quickly realized that that was not the case. I had been 
very lucky to be around this group of people, you know, with this set yeah. of values for my entire adult life up to that point. And when I left, I found, you know, the, just the level of person um, like that um, to be so hard to find, let alone to be completely surrounded by 24, you know, seven. Yeah. <clears throat> and that, <clears throat> as much as anything, was the thing that kept me coming back was just, you know, a desire to look for the things that this sport and that the people in it give me as a human being. And, um, <clears throat> very difficult to find, you know? Yeah. And, and it keeps you coming back. I mean, I've talked to several pros on this show who say they retire from the sport, but they're still riding. Um, you never really retire, do you? Yeah, no, not really. You know, I'm getting to the age now where I just I can't train hard enough anymore to be competitive. And so, you know, eventually I have, um, I have to let that go. My body is, you know, getting older and I have, you know, a bunch of injuries as every pro does, you yeah. know, from all the crashes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I eventually you have to let that go. But yeah, you know, it's really being around the group of guys. And I think, you know, Patrick, the one thing that, that I guess if I am um, bitter about, and I think any pro that doesn't admit this is lying either to themselves or, or to the people they're talking to, because I know most of these guys and almost everybody feels the same way. The one thing I'm bitter about is, you know, the, the reputation that the sport's gotten from the whole doping issue and, and the, the kind of mass belief that every professional cyclist that ever won a race was a doper when I know 100% that that is absolutely untrue and that the majority, not the minority, the majority of the guys that I've known and I know everyone, you know, race yeah. clean their entire careers. And, um, yeah, there was the whole European Tour de France postal doping scandal and the whole, you know, world-class tour, you know, grand tour stage race scandals. But those guys aren't racing domestically here. They're not making their living here. You know, they're all through the history of the sport. And, and most of the guys, you know, have been clean. And yeah. all the riders know it. All the pros, all the way back to the early 90s to today, they know who's dirty and who's not. And um, it's not hard to figure out. It's very easy. And it's a very small world. And... I just feel like the majority of the guys that, you know, made the right choices and, and um, lived their lives in a way they should have really gotten the shaft. And, uh, you know, hopefully I, I want to expose that, whether it be in a film or in an article or, or, you know, some way. So hopefully that will happen. I, I hope so, because I think that there are enough stories of people who have been trying to do it the right way. And I've talked to people many times who say, you know, okay, I've gone, I, I, I finished high school. Um, I'm, I, I have this goal of being a bike racer. I get to this specific level where the choice is either I go this way and follow down this dark path, or I go back home and I'm a greeter at Walmart. And, um, it, and that's a tough choice. And some people have made that choice and and it's it sucks it's it's a really black eye on on a sport that you and i both hold dearly and when i talk to people and tell them what i what my passion is that will eventually come up no matter what level of experience or education they have right and then you know that's that's um 
you know, that's the misnomer. Yeah. Uh, and the, the real error is exactly what we started with. This guy that's coming out of high school that is a, a, a decent or even a very good Cat 2 rider, Cat 1 rider locally at 18 years old. Yeah. Before they kind of make that statement a year or two or three years later, because there have been lots of guys that I've known that have fallen back on that. Oh, I could have been great if I wasn't racing against the Dopers. And, you know, my answer to them is usually no, I'm sorry, you, you couldn't have. Really? You're, you're 2% short. You know, you're just 2% short, and I can put you in the lab and show you if you, if you want to do it. And, you know, you know, it's interesting because DeLuca's book just came out, and, um, you know, he's, of course, not apologizing at all, and he's saying, you know, this made me 5 to 7% better, and if I wanted to win these big races, I did it, and blah, blah, blah. I haven't read the book yet, but, um, you know, if you just do the numbers, a guy that's, you know, 10% below the world-class pro or, or, you know, the U.S. domestic class pro that's winning the races, he could be 10 or 15% below these guys. He can do all the drugs in the world. He's only going to get 5% better, and that's just physically. That has nothing to do with your team, your tactics, your training, your discipline, your experience, all the other factors. And it's just not true. It's just untrue that all these guys that think, you know, and this is probably the most unpopular statement I'm ever going to make, but all, all these guys in the country that are pretty good amateur riders think I can win pro races if I don't. They're just sadly mistaken. And, and not, I'm not talking against dopers. I'm talking about clean guys that are just better and um, in every way. And so, you know, that's kind of the, the statement that nobody wants to hear. But it's been the prevailing myth now for I don't know how many years. So wow. So okay. No, that is, that's a lot for me to swallow. To be honest, no, I, I and I'm I can't disagree with you. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, as a as a guy who you know who who was at that competitive level, who raced at that competitive level, who never, um, I never went to that neck phase. I went to college instead. That sort of a thing, and um, to. And people will ask, you know, did you ever regret not racing at that higher level? And I never have an answer for it because I never experienced it and I never went to there. But who'd have known? You know, maybe it was never never in the cards in the first place. Well, yeah, and you don't know till you try. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't know. But, but what you do know is, you know, especially nowadays, what you do know is, is your physiology. Yeah. And, um, you know, not every kid, you know, running track in high school um, thinks they're going to grow up and break a four-minute mile. And yet, every kid racing a bike in college thinks they're going to grow up and doing well, thinks they're <laughs> going to grow up and win pro races. And I don't see how people can't see the comparison. Yeah, that's a great you point. You have to be able to put out a certain amount of wattage for your weight of consistently in different disciplines, sprints, in, in aerobic disciplines, in um, short-distance disciplines. And these are hard numbers, you know, and, and if you can't do those numbers, you really shouldn't even start trying to do everything else it takes because you just can't 
tune the motor that finely. You know, you can tune it to the nth degree, but if the motor has a size, you know, that is not going to be big enough, you're not going to make it. And um, like I said, in track and field or, you know, some of the other purely endurance-based sports, swimming, you know, um, it doesn't become an issue where every guy, you know, in the pool and in college thinks that he's going to be a gold medalist. And uh, I, I don't wow. know. That's, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a great point. And, and you can tell those guys when you see them. Uh, right. You, you can, can go, tell, that guy's got something. They get on the bike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I look at, okay, I, I have a guy now. Um, uh, oh, God, I just dropped his name. The young kid that's riding for Cannondale now. Uh, he's doing so well. He just has had this meteoric rise. Yeah. A climber. Um, God, what is his name? Oh, he's going to kill me. I don't remember his name. I'm trying. He, he, he tried for one of the smaller teams in Cannondale, um, picked him up uh, last year. He did so well in Tour California. Um, did really well in Australia early this year. Gosh. Oh, no. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, he's... Yeah. Uh, he, he's the real deal, you know? Um, you look at his his times as a runner um, before he started cycling, and it makes total sense that after three or four years, you know, as a pro, he can be doing the performances that uh, that he's doing. You know, that, that it's just a, it's a, it's a no-brainer, you know? Uh, and, but... The other guys that can't do that to think that, um, you know, they can suddenly step up to that level, it's just, yeah. no, I, it's just a, it really kind of baffles my mind, you know, when you look at the guys that win the pro races, <clears throat> Michael Woods is his name, just came to me. Okay. <clears throat> so look at Michael Woods' you know, rise and look at his background. You look at the size of his frame, you look at his aerobic history through college and it's obvious this guy's got the motor wow you know he just got the motor and um so guys that don't have that you know to, to suddenly think they're gonna learn all the other things it takes to be able to be competitive at a high super high level and not have that that's just it's just unrealistic well, that's depressing. No, I'm kidding. But. Well, like, yeah, I mean, hey, I, I wanted to play, you know, in the NFL when I was uh, 13 yeah. years old. Yeah. It, it wasn't realistic for me. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, t- I guess we could all step out of our Disney world a little bit and understand that sometimes, you know, maybe we were made to do something else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right on. You know, well, the, one, the one I'll, final, I'll finally say, you know, the one great thing about cycling is, um, you know, I'm a big math guy. I love the numbers. And so there are so many things that any cyclist can do to get better. You know, whatever motor they're born with, I've seen, oh man, I don't know, less than 1% of all cyclists I've ever known reach their potential. And um, so while, you know, on one hand we talk about, well, you're not going to win the U.S. Pro Championships just because you're a good Cat 1 rider. That's not realistic. But what is realistic is you can have a really, really fulfilling, you know, quote, career as a bike rider at whatever level you're at simply by doing everything else right. Yeah. 
And um, that's what's great about the sport is the makeup of the sport does allow for weaker guys to beat stronger guys. It does allow for that. And that's unique in our sport, you know. Right on. Absolutely. Well, you guys, the movies are The Hard Road and now re-released digitally, Pro. Um, so, And we got the link, and I will be sure to follow up with that link on the website and make sure that people can see it and gain access to it. Uh, Jamie, uh, boy, thanks a lot. Really cool perspective, in, and I appreciate all your time on the show. No, thank you. I love talking about it, Patrick, and thanks for uh, giving me a call. You bet. See, when I tell you? Jamie's got some, I guess he doesn't sugarcoat it, right? So for those of you out there thinking, man, if I just, you know, one more syringe, one more syringe, and then I got that pro contract. It ain't going to work. You don't have the engine anyway. So just shut up and go ride your bike and have fun, right? Good guy. Tells it like it is. And his, and his movies are pretty darn cool, all right? Check them out. Hard Road. Pro. Bro, now it's digital. I didn't even know how to pronounce Vimeo. Vimeo, I was calling it Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O. So there's something right there that I learned. Another episode is complete, you guys. It's good to be back. Sometimes the uh, the interviews take a little bit of time. Jamie and I took a lot of emails back and forth and trying to get times to, uh, to make it happen in terms of the interview. Good guy. Uh, I got to thank him for, for making it happen and making that, that interview come to life. Um, and I want to thank you guys. Uh, the, as I said, numbers have been growing steadily in the podcast. Tell your friends, go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Give us a rating. Give it, you know, do it. I dare you. Give me a rating. Bring it. <laughs> a review, not a rating, a review. <laughs> oh, shit. You guys, I'm going to try. I'm going to try right after I finish posting this podcast to get on the bike. I don't think I'm going to go outside because the shoulder's still tender, but I'm going to try and get on the, on the trainer here. Go over to Zwift where everybody's so easily offended. It's a great program, but, man, there are a lot of people who are pissed off over there. Lighten up, and let's just have some fun riding our bikes. We'll catch you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 